Some of us are a little bit lacking in the wisdom department, aren't we? Like the bank robber who um, was persuaded by the teller in the bank to fill out his real name and address on a withdrawal slip before she'd give him the money. If you enjoy um, trigger-happy TV like I do, you'll know that there are plenty of gormless people out there in the world. And uh, others amongst us just seem to have an instinctive uh, understanding of the way the world works. Our local millionaire Richard Branson, for instance, seems to have a very happy uh, knack of uh, doing the right thing at the right time, at least until he got into the railways, that was. And everyone is fascinated with people who seem to be able to make a success of this world, with people who seem to understand it. It is exactly the same in the, in the Christian world as well. Um, management is the big thing in, the, in uh, the church at the moment, in churches. Evangelists are exhorted to learn marketing skills. Pastors are told, and I quote, to be empowering, focused, change-implementing, informatized self-starters. And I have to say, I'm completely lost. Someone sat down with me when I was first here and told me that what I needed to do was uh, to to work out where I wanted to be in five years' time, then to work out step by step um, how we were going to get there, and then to set out to achieve that um, one step at a time. And um, needless to say, if you know me, I didn't follow his advice. Partly because I've got the same level of management skills as the average invertebrate, but also partly because I actually don't think God works that way. It actually seems to me that an awful lot of life is built on an illusion. Illusion that actually my success or my failure depends entirely on my ability to understand and control the world that I live in. Of course, there is enough truth in that statement not to dismiss it completely. The the Romans used to say, fortune favours the brave. Today we say, you make your own luck. There are people whose dynamic, astute ability tends to make them successful. And certainly fools tend to be a disaster, don't they? But I don't think this world is as predictable and as controllable as we would like to think. I actually think accidents happen. I think surprises come around the corner. As the teacher says in uh, chapter 9, verse 11, the race is not to the swift, or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise, or wealth to the brilliant, or favour to the learned. Time and chance happen to them all. We would like to think that the world is predictable and controllable because actually that puts us in control of our lives, in control of our destiny. Whereas the awful truth is, in fact, that we are not. Not one of us is. That's what the teacher wants to impress upon us this morning. Most of you will remember that the second half of this book, Ecclesiastes, that we've been looking at is self-consciously, actually, a mishmash of bits of advice 
in this meaningless world. He says, well, currents go one way and then another, and so we need different bits of wisdom for when the current's going in different directions. But there are certain themes that come out in the second half of Ecclesiastes again and again that, that unify that part of the book. We saw two weeks ago that um, uh, again and again he says he can't see the future. Last week we saw he says he can't see real justice working itself out. Now, in one sense, he encapsulates all of that by saying, I just don't understand how this world works. And nor does anyone else. The Bible uses a... Um, a particular word to describe people who understand how the world works. It's that word, wisdom. And it's actually a very broad word in the Bible. It can, it can mean skill. Skilled craftsmen were said in the Old Testament to be wise at the work they did. It can mean being streetwise. Some of the Proverbs will uh, make, you, make your hair stand on end a, a little bit by the advice that they give, because it's not standard morality. It's actually advice as how to live in the real world. Wisdom is not about being a philosopher, then. Wisdom in the Bible is about being successful at life. In the Bible's terms, Richard Branson is more wise than philosophers uh, uh, are in the university. And the big thing that the teacher wants us to see as he talks about wisdom, about understanding the world and making a success of it, he wants us to see that actually wisdom promises us the world, but it actually delivers very little. Contrary to what uh, uh, we may have just read in uh, Proverbs chapter 4. Remember, uh, uh, the teacher in Ecclesiastes is, is, is constantly actually trying to put the other side of the story to what's generally put in Proverbs. First of all, he says, he tells us um, uh, all over the place about the promises that wisdom makes. Chapter 7, verse 11, for instance, just back in page 673. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun, he says. Being endowed with wisdom, he says, is, is, is good. In fact, he says, it's as good as being endowed with money. Verse 12. Wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter. Uh, the precise meaning of that is not entirely clear. Literally, it says, in the shade of wisdom, in the shade of money. And I suspect it's probably a proverb. Probably effectively saying, if you live your life under the protection of wisdom, you will find that you live your life under the protection of money too. Amen, say all the management books. Amen, says Bill Gates. If you get smart, you get money. That's the way the, the world works. But knowledge of wisdom, says, uh, says the teacher, is even better than money. But second half of verse 12, the advantage of knowledge is this, that wisdom preserves the life of its possessor. In other words, rich fools are a disaster waiting to happen, aren't they? They get into drugs, they get into all sorts of unwise activities. But a wise person who is rich has everything. They look after their lives as well as as uh, having money. Wisdom is great. 
Wisdom, he says as well, in chapter 8, verse 1, brings happiness. Who is like the wise man? Who knows the explanation of things? Wisdom brightens a man's face and changes its hard appearance. When have you ever seen Richard Branson frowning? And wisdom, he says, is more powerful than political authority or military might. Back in chapter 7 again, verse 19. Wisdom makes one wise man more powerful than ten rulers in a city, he says. The most powerful people in the, in the world today are not the politicians or the generals, but they are skilled executives who run multinational companies. Remember Tony Blair a few years ago running off to uh, present his vision of Britain to Rupert Murdoch's media empire? He knew who's in control of this world. Even American presidents have to uh, doff their caps. So those clever people who wield an enormous amount of power. When a, when a BBC reporter recently asked what um, American policy would be like without the influence of big business, the anonymous White House insider said, you might just as well ask what a lake would be like without water. Skilled, competent, clever Wise people are powerful, happy, and rich. More powerful than ten rulers in cities. But, says the teacher, that's just the public face of wisdom. That's only half the story. In the end, he says, the reality doesn't live up to the hype. You know, in order to make that point, he tells this story that Steve just uh, read to us. Let me, let me uh, read it again. I saw under the sun this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. Here's a real-life story, he says. There was once a small city with only a few people in it, and a powerful king came against it, surrounded it, built huge siege works against it. Now there lived in the city a man, poor but wise, and he saved the city by his wisdom. Here's the power of wisdom, he says. This is wisdom being more powerful than ten rulers in cities. But, he says, what really happened? I mean, by rights, this man should have been powerful, rich, and lived long and happy life, shouldn't he? But verse 15, the second half, Nobody remembered that poor man. The first opportunity after the, uh, the, the Second World War, the British people voted Winston Churchill out of office. Nobody remembered him. One of my ancestors was an eccentric inventor. Maybe you won't be that surprised. And it's said in my family that uh, this man invented the sprung mattress. He died a pauper. Two things, says the, the teacher, undermine wisdom so commonly that they almost render it useless. The first, he says, is sin. Chapter 9, verse 18. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, he says, after that story. But one sinner destroys much good. 
Who knows, for instance, whether cloning, that great advance in wisdom that we're seeing and understanding that we're seeing at the moment, will be a marvellous thing or a terrible nightmare. What, most, what many people say is that one rogue doctor could do damage which outweighs all the good that cloning does at the moment. A little bit of sin can destroy all the benefits of wisdom. And the second thing that undermines wisdom, he says, is folly. As dead flies give perfume a bad smell, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honour. Great big pot of perfume, which attracts the flies who fly over, smelling its lovely vapours and then are rendered insensible and fall into that and start the rotting process. One bad judgment can ruin a politician. One foolish investment can impoverish a millionaire. The road to success is actually like a chain. One break in the link and it's useless. It fails. And anyway, says the teacher, Real wisdom is ultimately elusive. We can't find it. That's how he began the uh, second half of the book, way back in chapter 6, verse 11. The more words, the less meaning. How does that profit anyone? We live in an information age. We live in a world full of words. We need to ponder that verse long and hard, I think. We may have more facts in our hands than ever before, but do we know their value? Do we know their meaning? And we, we bombard teenagers with sex education and preside over an explosion of sexually transmitted diseases. What profit was that? We have an exploding uh, level of, uh, of, of medical knowledge at the moment. But what does that do? It generates for us an absolute forest of ethical dilemmas which we just cannot keep up with. The more words, the less the meaning. And what profit was that? We actually live in an age which has, which has lost any guiding framework to give meaning and coherence to all this, this information, these words which flood at us. And the um, philosopher Alastair MacIntyre in his book, um, Whose Justice, Which Rationality, describes how actually whenever we start to debate how we should live, people just start speaking past each other because they don't share any fundamental convictions in common with each other. But what we're seeing at the moment is, uh, is a complete collapse of any, any overarching understanding of how to live in this world. At the same time as an absolute uh, a mushrooming of information. Chapter 6, verse 12. Who knows what is good for a man in life? During the three few and meaningless days he passes through like a shadow. Or chapter 7, verse 24. Whatever wisdom may be, it is far off and most profound. 
And who can discover it? Actually, in the end, says the teacher, the more we see in this world, the less we really know in this world. Chapter 8, verse 16. When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe man's labour on earth, his eyes not seeing sleep day or night, then I saw all that God has done. No one can co comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all his efforts to search it out, man cannot discover its meaning. Even if a wise man claims he knows, he cannot really comprehend it. Here is the ultimate irony, he says. The more you know, the less you understand. The more someone claims to understand how the world works, the more certain you can be they're a charlatan. Most of the great political disasters of the 20th century were fueled by people who claimed that they had the last word on how the world worked. Pol Pot's Cambodia, Lenin in Russia, Mao in China, all claimed that they know, and they all lied. Wisdom promises the world, he says, and delivers nothing. Now, says the teacher, we need to get back to solid facts in order to build an understanding of this world. Wisdom must start on a firm foundation of something absolutely indisputable. There is only one certainty on which to build wisdom, he says. Chapter 7, verse 2. Death. It's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of every man. A living should take this to heart. And he meditates on the same theme for verses afterwards. Benjamin Franklin once said, didn't he, in this world nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Now, there are a few places in this world where you can avoid taxes, so let's uh, shave it down a little bit more. There is nothing certain except death. That's the irony. The most solid, most reliable fact in this world on which to build a life that really understands this world is the fact that our life will end. We will pass on naked, alone, and impotent. The uh, management guru, Char Charles Handy, often tells how um, he was um, successful and highly respected when his father died. His father was an ordinary village vicar. And uh, Handy says, frankly, he'd rather dismissed his father. At his father's funeral, 300 people turned up to thank God for this man's life. Charles Handy sat down and thought, how many people will come to my funeral? 
real value is in there in my life. He started rethinking and now he writes articles with penetrating Ecclesiastes-like questions. Like, what's it all for? Chapter 7, verse 2. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting. For death is every man. But what's the answer? Now, if this is the only solid fact on which to build our lives, what, what sort of life does that mean we should be building? The teacher um, has no fully formed answer to that question. He has explored the, the darkest depths of meaninglessness in this, in this world, uh, as we've seen again and again. And uh, as we have seen over the last two weeks especially, he finds as he plumbs the depths, he cannot stay there. He finds, actually, as he looks with, with, with ruthless honesty at this world, that it's then, actually, that real faith starts welling up. That happens in people, you know. I remember meeting a young man some years ago who'd been converted through reading a Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. It's a depressing meditation on the, the reality of human depravity. But as he looked at this uh, description of mankind and realised how true it was, this young man found, actually, real desire for God, real confidence in God welling up inside him. Many people think, you see, Christianity is for naive fools who've never really examined the, the, the world. And actually the opposite is the case. The fools are those who naively think that they understand the world, that they can master the world, that they can control the world. They are the people who've never really looked at their lives and said, I must die. They're people who think they are immortal and they are fools. See, the wise people are people who have, like the teacher, looked honestly at this world, have seen the dark realities that there are in this world, and who have discovered as they meditate on that how gloriously liberating is faith in Jesus Christ. We've seen uh, over the last um, two weeks how uh, the uh, teacher begins to feel his way towards a solution in this uh, confusing world that we live in. And once again, he does um, do that. Once again, it's in chapter 11 that we looked at two weeks ago, but we need to look at it again. Page 676. Cast your bread upon the waters, he said, for after many days you will find it again. Then jump with me to verse 5. As you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God 
the maker of all things. Sow your seed in the morning and at evening let not your hands be idle, for you don't know which will succeed, whether this or that, or whether both will do equally well. When we looked at this passage uh, a couple of weeks ago, we saw that he, he's clearly saying we can't know the future. In fact, he says, uh, and again, again, that we do not know. You do not know, verse 2. You do not know, verse 5. You cannot understand, verse 5. You do not know, verse 6. We still don't know how the body's formed in the womb. In fact, one of the, one of the uh, extraordinary things about the Human Genome Project is the discovery that only a very little part of our DNA is actually used in our bodies. The extraordinary complexity of the human body is coded by just a few thousand genes, far fewer than we thought ten years ago. The mystery of life gets more confusing, not less. We cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. Even if Stephen Hawking boldly predicts that we are in sight of knowing the mind of God, he himself knows that's just a bit of hype for the publishers. We don't. We do not know. There is no alternative, says the teacher, but to trust God. People who really looked at the real world either end their lives in absolute darkest despair or they trust God. There is no middle way. After all my meditations on life, says the teacher, I cannot erase the confidence that as I cast my bread upon the waters, after many days, I will find it again. I cannot lose the confidence that God somehow mysteriously is working good purposes out in this world. And I will live with that. As we have seen, the New Testament starts to give clarity to uh, this, uh, this misty searching that the teacher has uh, uh, engaged on. Clarity that he would have shouted with joy to see. The New Testament says so much that uh, the teacher would have, would, have, would have been overwhelmed with. For instance, Jesus promises us wisdom that the teacher longed for. On one occasion in, uh, in Matthew 12, verse 42, he says, one greater than Solomon is here. A teacher, teacher, remember, was saying, I am Solomon's nemesis. I'm the one that's telling you how wafer thin all of Solomon's wisdom is. And now Jesus comes along and says, teacher, you're right, but I'm greater than Solomon. I've got something to teach you which is more satisfying than Solomon could ever see. What is it? Well, his life is full of the most extraordinary teaching, but let me just turn you to um, 
uh, to one passage. You can either listen as I read it or turn it up yourself. It's in Matthew 16, verses 24 to 27. Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? The Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels and he will reward each person according to what he has done. See, this is wisdom that knows that life is fleeting, but sees beyond this life to eternal life. This is wisdom that knows it's possible to lose your soul by chasing after this life. The teacher said, who knows what is good? Jesus said, I'll tell you one thing that's not good. To lose your soul, even if you gain the whole world. <coughs> this is wisdom that says to, to, uh, to Bill Gates and George Soros and Richard Branson and everyone else, what use is it if you do not save your soul? Then again, the New Testament tells us something else. Quite extraordinary, this time in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verses 6 and following. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul, just like the teacher, pours scorn on wisdom. But then he begins to speak of God's wisdom. We do, however, he says, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No. We speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. And what is that wisdom? It's the wisdom of the cross of Christ. It's the wisdom that says actually the only way to find eternal success is by accepting that, the, that God the Son died on the cross to win our forgiveness. And the only thing worth living for is to live for that forgiveness. To live for Jesus Christ. And then you have everything. Because you have eternal glory. See, the New Testament writers have discovered truths that the teacher only saw from a distance. Here's one more, uh, uh, one more uh, example of that. An answer uh, so emphatic to this, uh, this, uh, uh, this negative observation of the teacher. No, says Paul in Romans chapter 8, we know how the world really works. In verse 20 of, uh, uh, of chapter 8, he says very free, freely, the creation was subjected to frustration or to meaninglessness. Yes, teacher, you're right in that. This world is a meaningless place. 
But he says we can see beyond that. Though he says we groan as the whole creation groans, we are offered, he says, a more profound confidence than the teacher could ever have imagined. Verse uh, 28, he says, <coughs> We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. We know. You do not know, you do not know, you do not know, you do not know, says the teacher. We know, says Paul. Though we may groan with confusion, though we may have to live in this frustrating, meaningless world, there are things we know if we are Christians, he says. And therefore we can live with a greater confidence and a greater abandon than the teacher ever could. Frankly, I don't know what's going to happen to me in my life. I don't know what's going to happen to this church. If I was a better manager, perhaps uh, I could manage my life and manage this church better. But actually, in the end, I would be frightened to do so because somehow, actually, that would make it my project and not God's. It would make us dominated in the church by, by budgets and cost-benefit analyses and easy target groups for evangelism. And such wisdom may bring success, but it is absolutely wafer thin. If I was wiser about how I lead my life, maybe I'd find somewhere where I can get a better job, a better wage, more respect. But I would have tried to rest God's sovereignty from his hands into mine. And I would end up miserable. I'm going to cast my bread upon the waters and wait for God to do his thing. And let me say something very, very frankly to you. You don't know what's going to happen to you either. You don't know what the future holds. You don't know how this world works. Why not learn that wisdom of Jesus? What use is it if we gain the whole world yet forfeit our soul. Why not learn the wisdom of Paul? The cross is our only hope. It is wisdom because it gives us the only success there is. Success that accepts a free gift of forgiveness from Jesus Christ and looks forward to heaven. Why not ask God for the faith of a Christian? In all things God works for the good of those who love him. Then, you see, we are free. We, we are totally free. We are free to let life throw at us what it will and leave the results to God because God is not mocked. 
This weekend, the nation of Colombia is mourning the brutal murder of the Archbishop of, uh, of Cali, Isaias Duarte Cancino, his name is. That man was, uh, was an outspoken critic of drug trafficking, trafficking and uh, corruption in the government. He made so many enemies, nobody's got any idea who shot him. He must have known that a life like that was not the path to long life and riches. But you see, that man lived free. And who knows, by his lack of worldly wisdom, by his confidence in God, he may actually have done more good than an army of politicians. And you? See, God may not be calling us to martyrdom, but he is calling us to live for him without counting the cost. He is going to add things up at the end. We cannot do that sum now. All we can do is just live from day to day for him. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will find it. Let's pray. Perhaps there's something particularly that you need to, to meditate on before God, just uh, silently now. Perhaps some way in which you're trying to hang on to control of your life rather than be obedient to Christ. Now's the time to speak to God silently about that. Our loving Heavenly Father, we have to confess before you that we lack wisdom. But possibly more than that, Lord, we lack courage. Take away our coward's heart, Lord. And give us hearts and minds and wills that are prepared to serve you and follow you whatever the cost. Leave the accounting up to you. Perhaps some of us here, Lord, haven't even begun really to follow you. Pray that you would show us with clarity, why it's the only way to live. And give us the courage to take decisions as we need to.
Many of us here, Lord, have walked with you, but we stumble, we lose confidence, we think we can manage our lives. Our Heavenly Father, help us to see how foolish that is. How extraordinarily liberating it is. Simply to entrust ourselves to you. Every one of us, Lord, needs to be ready to meet you, Jesus Christ, face to face. When books will be opened and we will have to give an account for our lives. Help us to live our whole lives with that as the most dominant reality in our lives. For Jesus' sake.